Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the history and unceremonious end of affirmative action for college admissions that were an attempt to correct the compounded impact of hundreds of years of systemic racism. Sources today include Straight White American Jesus, More Perfect, Notes from America, Amicus, and Amanpour and Company, with additional members-only clips from The Nation and Straight White American Jesus. So let's just talk about history real quick. So some of you might be thinking, all right, so where did college admissions and and affirmative action and all that start? So let me talk uh, through an article by Genevieve Carlton, uh, Dr. Genevieve Carlton, who wrote about this. Carlton explains, and this is a very basic history. Others have done this as well, that the phrase first appears in 1961. And this is when JFK creates the Committee on Equal Employment Opportunity. And a black lawyer named Hobart Taylor Jr. wrote the phrase affirmative action in the margins of a draft of Kennedy's executive order. So initially, affirmative action encouraged employers to hire marginalized people. So if we think of the early 60s, this is a time when there is a kind of growing emphasis and momentum in American society that says, look, when it comes to hiring, uh, you should uh, consider uh, those who have been marginalized, namely uh, black Americans and other people of color and women. Okay. Now, this leads to affirmative action executive orders by subsequent presidents. So Lyndon Johnson and I just want to note Richard Nixon uh, both passed executive orders to end race discrimination in hiring. Okay. So initially we're talking about hiring here, but then we have Johnson. So let me talk through these executive orders. In 1966, Johnson is really focused on contractors and, and telling them to take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and the employees are treated during the employment uh, without regard to their race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. It's a couple years later that Nixon, 1969, uh, promises affirmative action in government employment. So we have the private sector, we have the um, we have the uh, the public sector in terms of hiring. Now, soon thereafter, like 1969 and after, colleges voluntarily adopted similar policies to combat racial discrimination. Okay, so in 1969, many elite universities admitted more than twice as many black students as they had the year before. So, friends, I just want to stop and say. These executive orders, won by Richard Nixon, a Republican, okay, had a cultural uh, change or they they put in place a cultural shift when it came to college admissions. Colleges were taking their cues from these executive orders and the the ideas of hiring people who had been marginalized and saying, hey, maybe we need to consider that there are folks coming from marginalized communities whose racial identity or marginalized identity needs to be considered when it comes to uh, college admissions, okay? Uh, Jerome Carabell is a UC Berkeley sociologist, and he says it this way. I don't see how you can understand it apart from the upheavals on campus, racial upheavals in the larger society, the general upheavals around the world. Speaking of affirmative action and its context in the civil rights movement and an era when American society was really coming to grips with uh, systemic racism and systemic oppression of a number of people. I can't help but think about 1968, 1969, the creation of ethnic studies in San Francisco and in the Bay Area through pan-racial coalition of Latinx and Black and Asian American activists and student organizers. Friends, I know we're going to come back to this later today, but what I want to put the, the emphasis on right now and underscore is that affirmative action and considering race in college admissions was a consideration of the ways that certain Americans had been systemically oppressed throughout our history. Okay, It was a consideration of our systems and our society as a whole. What the Supreme Court has done, and I know Dan's going to talk about this and I will too, is really now started to put the emphasis on the individual. 
and say, oh, no, we, we can hear about the individual's experience of their of of racism or marginalization, but we're not going to consider systemic racism or systemic oppression or anything like that uh, when it comes to considering these kinds of things. He's living in Houston. Kind of a garden variety existence. And something happens that sends him on this entirely new path. Basically, he and his wife move to a new neighborhood. They move from the suburbs into the downtown area, more urban. And in 1990, when we went to vote for the first time in our new neighborhood, I realized that the Republican Party had not fielded a candidate to oppose the Democrat incumbent running for Congress. This is a district that has almost 600,000 people, and you don't have a choice? You've only got one person running? Bloom decided to run himself. I lost. I don't, that was no great surprise to anyone. He actually lost by 32 points. But along the way, something really unusual happened. Um, During that campaign, he and his wife Lark, you know, they decided they were going to go meet voters in their district. They got a giant printout of all of the addresses in the 18th Congressional District. What was then called a walking list. And they just started going door to door. Meeting people, handing out literature. And they'd walk down, say, Oak Street. I would take the even side of Oak Street, and my wife would take the odd-numbered side of Oak Street, and we would start to walk, and... And he says, very quickly, they realized that the district's shape was funny. Some houses on one side of the street would be in the district, and then houses on the other side wouldn't. And sometimes the district would snake down a highway, catch an apartment complex, come back. It it just didn't make sense. Uh, This is Lark Bloom. Wife of Edward Bloom. It was peculiar because we had uh, maps that we had to follow and it was very odd the way some streets were in the districts and some weren't. Took a while for it all to really sink in as to how this could happen. After I guess about a week of this, we realized that neighbors had been separated almost house by house because of their race. He comes to believe that the reason this was done was for the explicit purpose to create a majority African-American district. This isn't untrue. This act flows from a clear and simple wrong. Part of the reason this was done was the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Millions of Americans are denied the right to vote because of their color. This act was a giant step forward in civil rights. You know, one of the primary things it did is eliminate barriers to voting, like poll taxes and literacy tests, all these, you know, strategies that had been used to keep minorities from voting. And then this other thing it did, um, sort of in a roundabout way through a series of interpretations, is it encouraged the creation of districts where the majority of voters were minorities. And that's because... You know, one of the strategies that had been used previously to um, sort of dilute the minority vote was to take minority communities and they called it cracking. They they sort of split them apart into many different districts so that they were never uh, in the majority enough to elect a representative. Right. So the right. Voting Rights Act tried to correct that. The 18th Congressional District was one of these majority-minority districts. The district was drawn by the Texas legislature to have a slight African-American majority. I think about 51% African-American. But this was the problem, according to Bloom. The way they got to that 
African-American majority was by creating this district that zigzagged all over the city and cut through neighborhoods. I, I could not understand. People live close together. They sent their kids to the neighborhood schools. They shopped in the neighborhood shopping centers. They were worried about neighborhood issues. To break these neighborhoods apart by race seemed so wrong to me. In his mind, this law was actually not limiting discrimination, but actually perpetuating it. Well, yeah. uh, And I don't know what the average person upon realizing this would have done. But I decided to file a lawsuit. He decided to sue the state of Texas. Called a few friends who lived in the 18th district. A racially diverse group of people. An African-American, a Hispanic, and an Asian. Kept looking and looking and looking until I found a lawyer that I could afford. $7,000 a month. We filed a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of Texas's redistricting plan. The basic charge was yes, the Voting Rights Act was good in its day, but now it was being used as this excuse to segregate people into racially polarized districts. It worked its way through the lower courts, and to my shock and surprise, in 1995... We'll hear argument now number 94805, George W. Bush versus Al Vera. uh, The Supreme Court took it up. And you went to oral arguments? Yeah, we all did. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. So there we all are. Our opponents stepped to the lectern and... At issue in this direct appeal is the constitutionality of three congressional districts. They make their arguments. That the court below erroneously ruled were racially gerrymandered. Texas basically said, y'all, we have to put people together by race. The Texas legislature has the obligation to satisfy federal requirements, and the Voting Rights Act is a federal requirement. Like, remember the Voting Rights Act? We're trying to make sure that there are enough minorities in this district so that they have a chance to elect a representative. Then our advocate... Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the court. ...made his arguments. Even if strict scrutiny is... Bloom's lawyer basically said, but look at the map. The map is bizarre, and the only reason it could have gotten this way is because you're only thinking about race. Only race. Think about it. That seems messed up. Isn't that messed up? It doesn't matter what your ultimate goal is. You cannot use certain forbidden tools. Race is forbidden by the 14th Amendment to be used as a tool. But in his example, the people of uh, St. Mary's... And, you know, it's a very tense situation. I'm not asking about this situation. Do you know any other situation in the law in which we allow race to be used as a surrogate? For it would be unconstitutional. But to use it as a more thoughtful racism, how is this done? I thought that's how you said this. Counsel, did not... you concede that? Or really did you say it would require strict scrutiny? You did say that, didn't you? L- let me explain. Well, did you say that or not? Let, let me find out. Did you say that or not? So in the end, the Supreme Court gives out this very uh, hair-splitty decision that I think gets at this deeper question that in our society and in our discourse, we just haven't figured out how to talk about in a way. And it basically said this, you know, look, if you're defining race just as the color of someone's skin, the government cannot use that in any way. That's against the Constitution. On the other hand, if you take this wider view and you look at race in the context of history, social context, then how can the government address discrimination without taking race into account? You, they have to. So it's this difficult balance. You can't look at race, but you have to look at race. And the Supreme Court says to Texas, look, All you're doing in this case is sorting people based on how they're labeled on a census. You're not looking at that wider context. You're not looking at if these communities live next to each other, if they share common interests. You're just sorting them based on race alone, and that's not good enough. You can't do that. When the opinion came down, the Supreme Court ruled in our favor five to four. That was quite a day. 
The day that we won that lawsuit, I was hooked forever. I want to start with the recent history, uh, because in the book, uh, you quote Newt Gingrich saying something in 1997 that sounds exactly like the Supreme Court in 2023. He said, quote, racism will not disappear by focusing on race. So take us back to the mid to late 90s. Why did you point to there as the modern evolution of what you call colorblind racism? How did this this thing emerge in today's politics? So I believe it was in in 19... 19- 97, when President Clinton at the time decided to lead what he called a national conversation on race and and, and really on racism. And Republicans, by and large, challenged that decision by stating that race was no longer a factor, that racism didn't exist, that the nation was colorblind. And and the term colorblind in reaction to President Clinton's uh, national conversation on race, and sort of he put together this uh, committee, which I believe was was chaired by the eminent historian John Hope Franklin. And, 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 but that was the reaction that we don't need to to discuss race, uh, let alone eliminate race, because the nation is, 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 is colorblind. And I think about, you know, this word colorblind, I, you know, I think about, you know, I grew up in the early 80s, in the 80s and early 90s. Um, and I just remember how people used to say proudly, you know, like, I'm colorblind, I, I'm colorblind, I do not see race. And that was proof of an evolved posture on race relations. And I always felt some kind of way when I heard it as a young man, even though I didn't really have the words or the language for why it was bothering me. Is is, is this related um, to that? Do you remember that, how that used to be the thing that people would say, just individuals? Is this related to what we're talking about here in terms of what the colorblind racism that you're describing? It, it is. And and I, I think you you had many people who were, were fed this mistaken belief that the problem isn't racism, isn't racial disparities, isn't racial inequities that we can empirically document, that the problem is talking about race, is merely identifying by race. And if we somehow stop identifying by race, if we stop talking about race, then apparently race will go to, go away. That's like saying if we stop talking about cancer as a cancer survivor, that suddenly this 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 epidemic of you know, if cancer will go away. I mean, it was it was a folly then and it remains a folly. Right. But the idea as it emerged as sort of a political thing, moving from, you know, the and, and I'm interested in this dichotomy between like what, you know, the, the, the common sense thing that I can imagine, you know, individuals who are not, uh, you know, students of racist ideas, they, oh yeah, great, I shouldn't be thinking about race. That's a very straightforward and common sense sounding thing. And then how that becomes a political tool um, for reversing um, public policy. Uh, Go ahead. Well, it it became a political tool largely because by the 1960s and especially the 1970s, a a growing number of people who recognized widespread racial disparities uh, also recognized that we could not eliminate those racial disparities by ignoring them. We actually needed to take affirmative action in order to close those, those racial gaps and so those who wanted to conserve those racial disparities uh, tried to say that, no, you who are trying to close, uh, those who I should say were trying to conserve those disparities, 
said those who are trying to uh, reduce them are the new problem. I, I mean, it was it was nonsensical. Uh, but many of the people who who claim color blindness or who advocate for race neutrality have no plan for reducing racial disparities and typically state uh, black, brown and indigenous people are underrepresented at the most selected colleges because there's something wrong and inferior about them. The very people who say race is not an issue hold racist ideas. In those late 90s, mid to late 90s, when Bill Clinton was holding his conversation on race and Newt Gingrich began ranting against, ranting for colorblindness, um, one of the things that arguments that you make in the book that, is that we were at a moment, a unique moment of a uh, surge in anti-racism and anti-racist organizing and consensus around anti-racist ideas. Can you just make that case? And, and thus, this was something of a backlash. I don't know if people remember that moment. Can you, what, what, what are you talking about there? Yeah, so we're talking about the, the early, I should say the late 1980s and the early 1990s. That was the rise of, of conscious hip hop. Uh, that was the rise of, of black studies in colleges and universities. That was the rise of of critical race theory in, in law schools. Uh, that was the rise of all sorts of uh, anti-racist uh, black and indigenous and, and native uh, organizations who, who were clamoring for self-determination and, and power. And, and, and of course, uh, there was a, a tremendous backlash that stated, no, the problem isn't racism. The problem are these people who are organizing against racism. And that sounds very familiar to this day. Yeah. The, the backlash part of it certainly sounds very familiar to it today. Uh, walking backwards through this history, so we're 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 in the you know in the eighties and nineties, this idea of colorblindness starts becoming a, a political tool. Walking back through this history, you write and stamp from the beginning about the Supreme Court's nineteen seventy eight ruling that upheld race based affirmative action, but with this important change in the logic, it was it was now justified because it created diverse campuses, which was seen as a benefit for all students. That's very different. Uh, from something that sought to counter the racist practices that had kept particularly black students out of many universities. I think a lot of people are probably familiar with that case now. It's come up a lot in the debate over the latest ruling. But I don't hear a lot about the dissenting opinions from the liberal justices in that case. And in your book, you point to Harry Blackman, who wrote, I want to I quote this. He wrote in his dissenting opinion, in order to get beyond racism, we must first take account of race. There is no other way and in order to treat some persons equally, we must treat them differently. And I just, I was revisiting that uh, after this ruling, I was going back through your book and I was re revisiting that and I thought, oh, it is impossible to imagine a public official saying something like that today. It, it, do, do you agree with me? Is that, am I, was, I, it just felt like a, a time capsule from another planet. Indeed. And, and, and I think, I think you have some elected officials who, who speed around the bush, but, but, but Justice Blackman said it very directly, and, and I agree, it'd, it'd be hard-pressed for many elected officials, even those who are defending affirmative action, uh, to, to say that today. We're running a special discount on memberships this month. Sign up now at bestoftheleft.com slash support to lock in that discount for as long as you keep your membership and enjoy ad-free versions of the show going forward. But until then... There was one opinion why there were two cases. When cert was granted in these cases, uh, they were consolidated. 
And then we had Justice Jackson, who was appointed to the court. And in light of her service on the Harvard Board of Overseers, she declared that she would recuse herself from the Harvard case. And the next thing we knew, we were getting an order stating that the cases would be deconsolidated for consideration. And they didn't give a reason, but we presume that that's so that Justice Jackson could be allowed to participate in the consideration of the UNC case. And now we, we are getting an opinion that is, you know, kind of the two rolled into one with the footnote stating that Justice Jackson didn't take any part in the consideration of the UNC case. And we have UNC is a public school, we had like a state school, and Harvard is a private school. And this was an effort to sort of resolve it for all colleges except military schools, which we'll get to in a minute. But this resolves it across the board, right? So um, UNC, we're looking at it under the constitutional claims, and Harvard, we're looking under statutory claims. Right. So the um, UNC case, which is akin to other challenges to race conscious admissions that have come before the court, uh, UNC is a public school. It's known by many to be the oldest public university in the country. And so the lawsuit that Students for Fair Admissions brought against UNC was filed under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So just like in previous cases where there were challenges to the race conscious admissions policies of public universities, um, that was brought under the Constitution. Now, Harvard, of course, is a private school. And so instead of filing suit against Harvard under the Equal Protection Clause, which requires state action, the lawsuit was filed challenging the race conscious admissions policy under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits racial discrimination on the part of federally funded institutions. And so Harvard, of course, receives federal funding, and so they can be sued in that way. I don't know if I would say that this case resolves the question for all universities writ large. I think theoretically speaking, there might be some university out there that is both private and does not receive federal funding. And of course, that question was not before the court. And I'll also note very quickly that the question of whether race can be used in college admissions at schools that are remedying intentional discrimination is also not a question that was before the court. So that's another thing to keep in mind, just like the military carve out that we saw in that footnote. I guess I just want to ask you after oral arguments in the case, I think we were surely expecting this outcome. I'm not sure we were expecting the breadth and sweep and sort of confidence of the Chief Justice's majority opinion. And I think maybe the reason it was a little bit surprising, Michelle, is that he had modulated some of his views on race in the voting rights cases. Just in the weeks before, uh, we saw him, you know, a lifelong opponent of the Voting Rights Act, suddenly changing his mind. I'm trying to, and I know it's not your job to parse the inner workings of the Chief Justice's um, thoughts about race, but do you sort of have a, a useful frame to think about why he was willing to sort of bolster the Voting Rights Act at the same time that he was willing to really cut into the heart of affirmative action as it's existed for many decades? It seems like a patent inconsistency, right? It's difficult to understand. Um, what I will say is that Alan V. Milligan, the voting rights case, I mean, it was a quintessential case of vote dilution. It was so clear. Um, and perhaps... This is an instance where we're seeing a jurist who can recognize racism in its most egregious forms, but may have some difficulty wrapping his mind around the concept of something that looks more like prophylactic relief, if you will. So here, it seems like you have the justice, you know, essentially saying and repeating what other um, Supreme Court jurists have said that 
surely we can't remedy societal discrimination, you know, kind of throwing their hands up as though it's an act of futility. And so we did see some language in there quoting Justice Powell in the Bakke decision, you know, talking about how societal, remedying societal discrimination is not a compelling government interest that can justify the use of race in college admissions. And we saw some discussion about that from Justice Roberts in the majority opinion as well. Could you reflect for a minute on, I think, sort of in the clear light of having read the opinions a couple times, the real indignity is not just doing away with, you know, race conscious affirmative action, but this colorblindness theory that is propounded by the majority. It's certainly, you know, brought to its maximalist reach uh, under Clarence Thomas in his concurrence, but it's just these References to Justice Harlan dissenting in Plessy, it's references to Brown v. Board and the career of Thurgood Marshall, you know, as though this is in line with a long, storied, painful history of civil rights victories. And I think, I'm trying to think, I think Sherilyn Eiffel was the person who describes this as gaslighting. You know, it's one thing to do away with affirmative action. It's another to cast yourselves as, you know, sort of the natural progeny of Thurgood Marshall in so doing. And I know this is a bit of a party trick. We see it all the time, right, associating yourself with Dr. King while undermining his legacy. But it does feel sort of extra, extra, I don't know what the word is, Michelle, trolley. Ghastly. Ghastly works better than trolley. I I just am am trying to think about how that lands uh, at the Legal Defense Fund when you are hearing, and, you know, you you see it in the dissents, it's just furious do not use Thurgood Marshall's name as part of this project. But I, I just wanted you to have a minute to, to sort of reflect on how that lands. It's jarring um, to see Brown, the Board of Education, and the legacy of Thurgood Marshall being weaponized in this way. Thurgood Marshall spent years working to fight de jure segregation and remedy the vestiges of de jure racial segregation. Brown, the Board of Education, was the Supreme Court intervening and saying that we're not going to have de jure racial segregation in this country. We are not going to deny educational opportunities to Black people. We are not going to allow this situation that is relegating Black people to second-class citizenship. And we will employ race-conscious remedies to cure the vestiges of de jure segregation. And so for that to be the actual history of what happened— and then for this court to turn around and say, actually, what Brown v. Board of Education and Thurgood Marshall stood for was the idea that you cannot do anything about societal racial discrimination. And what's more, you know, we're going to just blind ourselves to racial inequality. We're not going to allow for the consideration of race. It's jarring. It feels like they are turning Brown on its head, using Brown, which desegregated our country, to resegregate higher education. So I did with Students for Fair Admissions what I did with the University of Texas. And that is um, working with friends and allies uh, who yearn for the day that race and ethnicity is not a part of university admissions. Set up three new websites, harvardnotfair.org, 
uncnotfair.org and uwnotfair.org, W being Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So it was our hope to find students who had been rejected from those three schools, willing to join students for fair admissions and let us proceed into federal court. And that's, gotcha. that's what we did. Ed told me he got hundreds of responses to these websites from students who felt like they'd been discriminated against. He winnowed it down to just the students he felt had the most merit. I talked to the kids. I talked to their parents. Each of those kids and their parents who agreed to join and participate as sort of a participating member in a lawsuit, I got on a plane and went to visit with them, learned about their background, let them ask me questions. And who are they? What can you tell me about them? Well, uh, for the Harvard case, they are all Asian. Um, many of them are uh, children of immigrant uh, Chinese, children okay. of first-generation Korean and Vietnamese, and they have superlative academic records. I mean, just startlingly so. Perfect GPAs, perfect SATs and ACTs, active in sports, lots of volunteer efforts. And how many, how many of them are uh, directly associated with the case? That is something that the judge in the Harvard case has placed under seal uh, wisely. And Why? And I think, uh, well, we remember what happened with the, the harassment of Abigail Fisher. Bitch, if you don't take your little ass on somewhere. Maybe if your grades didn't suck, you dumbass, maybe you would have gotten into a good college. Becky with the bad grades. Really happy you and your racist lawyer got shot down. Abby was hounded. Abby was threatened. Um, We learned an important lesson, and that is, although there may be students who are brave enough to put their name on a lawsuit, the consequences can be dangerous and frightening. So all of the students involved in those three cases, Harvard, UNC, and the University of Texas, have standing as members of the organization and their names, their addresses, their email will never be made to the public. It's a, I mean, it's a funny thing though, because I mean, the idea of a plaintiff, even if it is often, uh, in a way, a theatrical construct, it's strange to have plaintiffs that you can't examine and that you can't say, okay, well, who are these people exactly? What are their circumstances? And you're right. Abigail Fisher, I think, was the subject of some very hurtful kind of harassment. At the same time, who she was was a helpful starting point for the conversation about whether this should exist. I mean, affirmative action or whatever you would call this doesn't happen in the court. It happens in the world. It happens in society. And this is something that affects all of us. Well, this is very common in federal lawsuits. The ACLU, which is a membership organization, often sues in the name of the organization, disclosing only to the courts their members who have been directly harmed by this. So what we're doing is not unusual. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, you've said in interviews uh, on this lawsuit that Asian-American students are being penalized for being a high-achieving minority. How do you argue that they're being penalized? Well, in litigation like this, we know that the court allows the use of race and ethnicity in admissions. What we also know is that you cannot, as a university, have too heavy of a hand using race and ethnicity. And furthermore, numeric quotas 
are completely forbidden. And how we show that Asians are being targeted in the Harvard case is to look at the number of Asians that have applied to Harvard and what percentage year after year after year has Harvard admitted. And what we have found is that from 1992 through 2013, um, the percentage of Asians that Harvard admits has been remarkably flat. In fact, in 1992, 19% of Harvard's freshman class was Asian, while in 2013, 18% were Asian. Now, that doesn't mean much until you realize that the number of Asians applying to Harvard during this period of time, better than doubled. Just a quick note here. Uh, Harvard hasn't actually released data on ethnicity and admissions for the years he was talking about, so we can't confirm the numbers he just used. We know that Ed Bloom was drawing in part from the National Center for Education Statistics, which is a government organization. And by the way, when he says 19% of the freshman class, it turns out the number he was using refers to more than just freshmen. We are in the middle of a long overdue membership drive. It's one of those things that doesn't feel like it should be necessary, but is. I mean, people are free to sign up for a membership all year round, but a lot of people, maybe people like you, no judgment at all, often wait for a special occasion when someone like me finally says, no, seriously, we really actually need new members and we need them right now. So here I go. We're a small team working on a small budget, so every new member really does make a difference to us. Members have been supporting the show and keeping us going since 2010, but there are always ebbs and flows. Financial situations change, political proclivities change, and so some of those who have supported us in the past no longer do. So every once in a while, we need to really make a point of asking for new members because that is literally how we pay for food, housing, medical insurance, and all the rest. Yes, there are ads in the show, but they don't pay all the bills. And since it's been too long since our last membership drive, we really actually do need new members and we need them now. To sweeten the deal, membership is on discount for 20% off this month, so you can grab that and lock in that price for as long as you keep your membership. You'll get bonus clips and chapter markers in every episode. There will be bonus episodes where the team get together to basically try to make each other laugh while also discussing really important issues, and there will be an ad-free experience all the way around. Just head to bestofleft.com support for details, and that link is in the show notes. Thanks in advance for your support. So in the court case, you know, race can still be expressed. Experiences with the race can still be shared as part of the college essay. Colleges can still ask about it. For instance, in California, the consideration of race is banned in college admissions. And in that case, we still see a test score differential and that test score differential is in part because of these socioeconomic differences between Asian Americans and other groups. And so I think there's very little evidence that Asian Americans have to have a higher test score and that not and that any kind of difference between test scores is due to anti-Asian discrimination in these cases. Because we also see that, I mean, it kind of if you think through the case a little bit more deeply than the headlines, then it also becomes obvious that you know, there are going to be differences between groups in terms of t test scores, average test scores, because of resources. 
And for those groups that don't, those students that don't score as high on a test, they might have to do a little bit better on other metrics. Now, the mistake in this case is that people were like, oh, you have the highest test scores. Well, you should also be getting the highest personal ratings. Well, that's not necessarily true. Other groups that don't have those test scores are going to have to show more strength in those other areas. So we have students who are, yeah, if we take a, a student X who has a very high test score, and I actually remember somebody from my high school, they got a perfect score in the SAT. Uh, but as a, as a college candidate, they were, they were not necessarily at the top of the ranking when it came, came to other aspects of their uh, portfolio. And there were some of us in high school who thought, well, so-and-so got a perfect score in the SAT. Shouldn't they just get admitted to Harvard or to MIT? And we sort of had to realize as 16-year-olds, oh, that's not how it works. You actually have to like write a personal statement and you have to, you have to show your, all these other aspects of your dossier. Now, let's come back to the model minority myth and how the model minority myth might play into the factors in a application that do go beyond the, the standardized test score. When we talk about those, those other components, the model minority myth basically says that Asian Americans are the model minority who are hardworking, smart, quiet, peaceful. There, there's a lot of ways that it's sort of uh, manufactured. How does this play into the process of college admissions in ways that are hurtful, uh, perhaps, and in ways that sometimes, unfortunately, are advantageous? So, you know, Edward Blum, the white legal activist who brought this suit with um, Asian American plaintiffs, Asian American plaintiffs, by the way, who never testified in the trial. The only two Asian Americans who testified in the trial were college students who defended affirmative action and opposed the lawsuit. But Edward Blum's suit makes much of this the fact that Asian, Amer the Asian Americans might have been subject to implicit bias in the ways in which their applications were evaluated. And what he brought forward were a small number of applications that his team reviewed, and he had access to a lot of applications. He didn't bring back any that showed discrimination, by the way, but he did bring forward a few applications that said things like Asian Americans were very, the, an applicant was very quiet or quiet and strong. And of course, I saw this and I was like, oh my God, because you think this is the model minority stereotype and it's hurting us because these readers are thinking Asian Americans are like these passive nerds that don't have leadership qualities. But then if you read through the court documents, you see that those exact same comments, very quiet, quiet and strong, were comments that were also written on Black, Latino and white applicant files as well. This was not an Asian American thing. And so, you know, there there's a lot of fears invoked here because of the model minority myth. Of course, I'm ever vigilant for the model minority myth. But in fact, you know, and I'm not saying Asian Americans don't face implicit bias. They do, right? Asian Americans do experience implicit bias that they are nerdy or quiet as, you know, but all non-white groups experience implicit bias and Asian Americans. And I think we need to contend with this, you know, that stereotype that we are quiet and nerdy, that is what fuels this idea that we're also super competent when it comes to academics, that we are hard workers who are really smart. And this provides actually an advantage. And the court case did show that Asian Americans had a bit of a, an unexplained higher rating on the academic rating beyond test scores, beyond grades. And that we can attribute to this, this implicit bias that really no other non-white group benefits from in that way. 
And there's really a kind of danger here. Within our own community, internalization of the model minority myth, internalization of the idea that we work harder and value education more than other groups, researchers have shown that that is associated with anti-Black attitudes. And, you know, it's just it's just a sort of snowball effect. Once again, it shows the ways that the model minority myth is a divide and conquer strategy. If you can have, if, if within the Asian American community, and I have seen this firsthand in my own family, if you can have Asian American people who adopt and accept the model minority myth that, oh, yes, somehow we are as Asian, Asian American people, something, something, something smarter, uh, harder working, et cetera. Oh, that must mean that other groups, minority groups, uh, other groups who are non white must be less. They must be different, right? And you can see how it really uh, has a pernicious effect. Uh, across the board. One of the ideas, one of the racist ideas that you most directly uh, commented on following the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action was the doctrine of separate but equal. You wrote about this in The Atlantic. Um, This is, of course, the idea that made racial segregation legal in the first place. How do the ideas in the court's affirmative action ruling have their lineage in separate but equal? Well, ironically, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, in his majority opinion in in the affirmative action case recently, talked about the notion that the schools were separate but equal was an inherent folly. Uh, and because everybody knew schools were not separate but equal. And, and I, I would argue that the lineage is that everyone should know that there are other admissions factors other than affirmative action that give preferential treatment, but almost all of the other ones give preferential treatment to white and wealthy students. Affirmative action is the only admissions factor that primarily benefits uh, Black, Brown, and d- Indigenous students. And, and unfortunately, um, he framed uh, all those other admissions factors as race neutral, which to me is just as much of a folly as the idea a century ago that these schools, which were obviously unequal, uh, were somehow equal. And I guess for help people with just a step more of that, because I think it's people hear things like, well, you know, this is just that's just like separate but equal mm-hmm. and think, well, that's, you know, that's ancient history. That's, you know, that is forever ago. And that is uh, a dead and gone idea. And how could you possibly listen to John Roberts saying, hey, just like, let's treat everybody the same and think, well, that's just like Jim Crow. Yeah, so, just, just do the math a little more for people. Sure. So John Roberts said it again and again that affirmative action was the only race based admissions factor. So standardized tests, uh, which uh, studies consistently show that they don't actually predict who's going to do well in college or even graduate school, but they do predict the test, the, 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 the wealth or the income of the parents of the test takers. And we have a massive racial wealth gap in this country, which then allows white and wealthy students to be able to use high-priced test prep uh, courses, which then boost their scores. So to imagine that a standardized test is not is somehow race neutral uh, denies the racial wealth gap, denies what studies show th- in terms of what standardized test scores predict. Mm-hmm. Similarly for legacies. Uh, and, and I think a, a recent, a lot of people have been talking about 
a study that was conducted at Harvard, uh, which, which found that a large percentage of their white students either were admitted as the result of being uh, the children of alumni, the relatives of donors, uh, athletes, uh, or even the children of employees. And, and indeed, the study found that about three-fourths of white students, if they didn't have those four admissions booths, would not have gotten admitted. And all four of those uh, elements give preferential treatment to white students. White students uh, have, a, have the ability to get boosted because their parents are more likely to be on the faculty and staff. Their parents are more likely to donate. Their parents were not shut out of these schools for hundreds of years like Black and Indigenous students. And white students are more likely to be playing high-priced sports that gets them into colleges. So to imagine those factors are race neutral, again, uh, flies in the face of reality. So it's in seeing, it's in looking at something plainly, with plainly inequitable outcomes, calling it neutral, but then once the word is racist said, saying that's racist, and that's the same ideas as uh, that supported Jim Crow in the first place. Um, exactly, because in this member, a century ago, Mississippi and Alabama were saying that their schools were separate but equal. <laughs> Just as people are saying that these other admissions factors right. are neutral. So some of you might be thinking, all right, what does this have to do with like book bans and don't say gay? Well, we're going to we're going to make that connection right now. So if it is colorblindness by legal fiat, and you are somebody, okay, who discusses whether in a legal setting, a business setting, or in a personal cultural setting. We now have a, a precedent from our Supreme Court that says we're not going to consider identities that have been marginalized, racial identities, and other things when it comes to college admissions. Okay. So what we're saying is, is that you as an individual might have had experiences that have been challenging because you are black, because you are Mexican-American, Colombian-American, because of your Vietnamese-American heritage, whatever may be. But as a whole, we're not going to consider the fact that Black Americans, right, have a collectively different experience than, than white Americans or others. We're not going to consider that the particular histories of being a Vietnamese-American when it comes to uh, everything from the wars to refugee status to all kinds of histories and, and other immigration stories we're, you know, those things collectively are not going to be part of this discussion. So, Dan, I'll give you an example of something that, that really hit me when you were talking. Um, you were talking about um, the ways that the military uh, is accepted from this. And I was thinking, <laughs> and there's a lot of discussion uh, about what this means for Asian Americans. And there's a lot of complexities when it comes to Asian American issues surrounded, uh, surrounding affirmative action. But here's something that hit me as you were talking, Dan, is like, my my grandfather fought in World War II. Uh, for the United States against Japan, the country of his parents' uh, heritage and, and citizenship and so on, his, his, him being a person of Japanese descent. He did that while other parts of my family were incarcerated in right camps set up by the, the American government. So they, he was given the exception. A lot of Japanese Americans were given the exception of leaving camp, an incarceration camp where the U.S. government had imprisoned them if they would go fight for the U.S. military. Now, there is a long and sordid history and discussion about those set of events, but Dan, that's that's part of this. All right, so here's the, the overall point. We seem to now have regressed to a point in the country's history where if you talk about a collective identity as one that has meant facing oppression or marginalization, everyone from a, uh, a legal 
point of view, and and we're going to get to this perhaps a, a business point of view and an educational point of view is going to be like, no, well, just you tell me about you. Okay. Are you a black person? What, give me the instances. Uh, spell it out in an essay in your college application. What, you're you're somebody who uh, is, is a Mexican-American and your parents immigrated to this country? Well, just you got to explain it. How did that mean some sort of challenges? Let, let us hear it. The, the point is, it's a colorblind approach that does not want to recognize the corporate identity. And what is the corporate identity based on? Well, what we're talking about is history. So, Dan, the the last person born to an enslaved uh, American, an enslaved black American, died last year. Jim Crow ended in our parents' lifetime. We are talking about, I mean, I could go through all the, I just talked about Japanese incarceration. I mean, Dan, it was not until 1967 that the Supreme Court basically protected uh people of mi- in mixed race marriages f- from like being criminalized across the country. I mean, we could name, and I'm not going to do it. We could name all the ways that racial uh, prejudice and exclusion have e- existed right up into the present. We could talk about George Floyd. We could talk about every last example, but the corporate identities we're, we're mentioning come from actual history. And I think that leads us Dan into why you want to ban books why you you want it so that your curricula does not include an AP hi- cl- history class on African-American history or African-American studies, why your curricula does not go into all of the, the atrocities of American history, including attempted genocide of Native Americans or Chinese exclusion, or so on and so on and so on. You start to connect the dots because if you, if you go through those histories and you have a citizenry, an informed citizenry that knows those histories, then all of a sudden they might think, hey, it might be good as as a society if we did something to rectify the ongoing marginalization and the historical oppression of certain groups, okay? We could talk about generational wealth here, Dan. I mean, we could compare generational wealth. And I want to come back to this in this segment and talk about the ways that the, the generational wealth and libertarian ideals are really not about the government not intervening. It's just about the government not intervening anymore. But I'll throw it to you. What does this have to do with don't say gay? What does the college admissions ruling from the Supreme Court have anything to do with attacks on trans kids or or don't say gay bills in Florida or anywhere else. I think what they show is what is emerging as a common strategy on the right. And um, it's a political art article by, uh, and I may pronounce, mispronounce uh, his name, so I apologize if I do, but uh, Aziz Hook, basically looking forward and saying, here's where this could go, right? And what he's looking at is a class of laws. Sometimes they're laws, sometimes they're like federal policies or policies uh, an agency might have, uh, but they're called disparate impact rules. And it's basically the idea, this will be basic to a lot of people that, that understand this, uh, disparate impact ideas. Um, this is how he describes it, and it, he summarizes it really well. He says, often, it's from the political article, people who act for bad reasons don't wear the racist motives on their sleeves or are simply negligent about the way that their actions entrench past race-based disadvantages. I want to hold on to that latter part. That's where a lot of well-meaning people live, I think. They participate in systems or practices or economic policies or whatever that have impacts on certain classes of people that they may never have been aware of, that they didn't that they didn't wake up in the morning trying to disadvantage somebody. That's just what happens, as well as really bad actors who know that they're racist and it's a way of hiding their racism and so forth. So he goes on to say, so disparate impact laws allow a plaintiff to prove they encounter discrimination by pointing to large and unexplained racial disparities. In other words, looking at kinds of patterns that exceed the individual, that exceed individual intention that somebody may not even know about and say where these policies are in place. For example, we could talk about like redlining laws or, or things that were in place with like mortgages and stuff and look and say, you know what? Entire swaths of a city 
have made it impossible for people of color to say get a mortgage uh, and to move there. Did individual home buyers like try to make that happen? Sometimes, sure. Sometimes they moved there because there were no people of color. But often they didn't. They're just applying for a mortgage, trying to buy a house, live out their slice of the American dream. Fine. But you get these so-called disparate impacts. So what happens here? Well, uh, uh, what uh, Hook goes on to say is he says this. He says, it's impossible to talk about, quote, racially disparate impact without talking of race. What you now say is, we can't talk about race. Sound familiar? Sound like don't say gay? We're not saying, Brad or anybody else, we're not saying you can't be queer, not saying you can't be trans. We're just saying that we can't have any books about that. Teachers can't talk about that. It can't be part of a curriculum. We're not saying there hasn't been a racial history in America. We're just going to say, we we can't talk about that. We're not going to let people talk about collective identities and so forth. It's the same thing. It's instead of don't say gay, it's don't say race. Um, And and you could look at this two ways. One is because this is not a, this, especially this, this, uh, vision of colorblindness has been a a conservative strategy for some time now. One could look at it and say, this is what the don't say gay people figured out. We'll use pick up the same kind of strategy and employ it there. And I think also the success of that strategy is influencing the Supreme Court now as the conservatives do this. It's a conservative idea that has boomeranged around and come full circle. So for me, that's that's the connection here. So what is the check that exists on the Supreme Court? Perhaps a check that we're not exercising today, that we used to find normal, because these are lifetime appointed justices. And at some point, uh, there is a decreased confidence in how they're doing their jobs. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, I think, a big part of where we are. And in that respect, I think the rise of the shadow docket is actually just a symptom of a broader disease. This is where I think we also have to bring in all of these stories about the justice's ethics um, and financial disclosure. Historically, the principal check on the court was Congress. Um, indeed, until 1935, the Supreme Court sat in the Capitol. And I think part of what has gotten us to where we are is that progressively, and especially in the last 35 years, Congress has basically taken its hands off. Um, and has gotten out of the business of being part of this ongoing interbranch dialogue about keeping the court in its lane. So when John Roberts writes back to uh, Illinois Senator Dick Durbin and says, I'm not going to come testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee because of separation of powers concerns, I think that's a reflection of a very modern and not remotely historical view of the separation of powers. Historically, the court was part of this conversation, as opposed to today, where it seems so completely above and oblivious to it. What's happened to our public confidence in the Supreme Court over these last few years? I mean, if you look at at least the survey, the survey data that's out there, it's, it's going down. Um, and I think this is a bigger problem than the justices really, I think, want to admit publicly. It's not that the Supreme Court should be guided by public opinion polls. Um, and it's not that the Supreme Court should just do what a popular majority wants it to do. But the Supreme Court does not have an army. Um, right. The reason why we as a polity follow the Supreme Court is because there's at least some substantial belief in the court's legitimacy as an institution. The more that that belief erodes, the more that we lose faith in the idea that the justices are exercising judicial power as opposed to political power. 
I think the more dangerous a slope this means we're on, because if we get to a point where there are large swaths of the population that refuse to accept the legitimacy of decisions from the Supreme Court, then the Supreme Court at that point becomes almost a pointless institution, one that can't stand up when we need it to to the majority. Um, that would be a huge problem for our constitutional system. And it's one that, frankly, the justices should be at the front of the line in trying to avoid. But from the perspective of the court as an overall institution, we see a bit more of a historical ebb and flow that suggests that our current moment, however frustrating and exasperating it may be, is not one from which we can't recover. What we need, though, is we need to have consensus that the court as an institution ought to be more accountable, that Congress ought to be more involved in a relationship with the court about its docket, that the justices should be more committed to providing principled rationales for their decisions, even if we're not all going to agree with them. Um, and finally, that the justices should, I think, be less in the business of criticizing critics who are worried about the court, who are trying to save the court from itself. That's why I think this is such an important moment for the court, but also one that has a lot of uh, sort of a lot of time, a lot of game still to be played. We've just heard clips today, starting with straight white American Jesus explaining the origins of affirmative action. More Perfect did a profile of Edward Blum, who spearheaded the lawsuit against affirmative action. Notes from America discussed the counterproductiveness of colorblindness. Amicus looked at some of the details of the dynamics of the court in this case compared to others. Straight white American Jesus punctured some of the myths about the model minority status of Asians and how that played into this case. Notes from America made the connection to the concept of separate but equal in the colorblind preferential treatment that's still allowed. Straight white American Jesus made the connection to the don't say gay law to show the theme of trying to conceal the truth to maintain the unjust status quo. And Amanpour and company discussed the power of Congress to oversee the Supreme Court that it so clearly needs to begin reasserting. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Nation featuring Ellie Mistel with further thoughts on how to structurally rebalance the court. Think about how different it would be if our Supreme Court operated on a panel system. Instead of showing up to court knowing that six conservative justices were against you or one or two conservative justices that you invited onto your super yacht are guaranteed to hear your case, you literally wouldn't know which justices you'd get on your panel. And straight white American Jesus took aim at the libertarian ideal in one of the best ways I've ever heard. Legacy is libertarianism and libertarianism is not saying I don't want the government to be involved. You know what libertarianism is? I don't want the government to be involved anymore because if they do, they might put their hand on the scale that tips it not my way rather than the centuries of tipping it for my way and me not even acknowledging that that happened. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support. Now to wrap up, I just want to highlight a point that was made in the show that I think deserves a little bit more attention. It was said that those who oppose affirmative action almost or maybe literally never come to the table with an alternate solution to the problem of the legacy of centuries of systemic oppression. And I bring it up now, not just to highlight that fact, but to say that I'm open to ideas. I don't expect that any system would be perfect and that the system as it stood 
could be inelegant in some ways. Frankly, I think its biggest drawback was the negative impression people had of it and the resentment it could foster. Now, I don't really think that the resentment was well-founded, but it was real nonetheless. So if there's a better solution, I'd be happy to hear about it. And I mean that. I, I know it could come off as flippant or derisive, but I'm serious. We should all be open to new ideas of potentially better ways to address the problems we're trying to solve. Affirmative action has been in place for a long time, and I wouldn't have voted to get rid of it, but it's not like it's entirely solved the issue. And now that it's gone, there will be renewed effort to find new ways of addressing the problem, and maybe something positive can come of that. We already heard that liberal groups are targeting legacy admissions in an effort to level the playing field in that way. So for all those who didn't like affirmative action or were uneasy with the idea of it and people being treated differently based on their race or identity, now is the time for alternate solutions, because doing nothing is not an option. And banning, giving help to those who are the legacy of oppression, but allowing extra help to continue to be given to those who are the legacy of privilege, will have a painfully predictable outcome. If you want the best and the brightest to really be able to rise to the top based on their merits, and you're not going to allow special consideration to be given to those who come from marginalized communities, well, then there's no way around the fact that we have to make a few equal and opposite changes to level the field in the other direction. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, at segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support. You can join them now during our membership drive. It would be greatly appreciated. And to continue the discussion, you can join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Best of the left dot com. Mm-hmm.